Turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. Uh, This morning, we're going to consider chapter 19, beginning of verse 16. As our normal practice here at Spring Hill Church is to methodically work our way through a book of the Bible, allowing a text to dictate the message from God to be delivered to His people. So first we will pray, then we will stand for the reading of the Holy Scripture we're considering. We'll then divide the text and make application as we journey through the passage that is before us. So if you would pray with me. Father in heaven, we are a people in need of grace this morning. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to have a mind that understands your word, a heart that is inflamed to love your word and your son. We need grace to have a will that is moved to obey your word, Lord. We pray for all who gather in Jesus' name throughout our region this morning. We desire that you have your way in this church and the church that gathers at Baker Creek. I pray, Lord, that you would use Pastor Dax and myself to clearly communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in each of our churches. We pray that this morning you have drawn your people to yourself and that you are continually drawing hearts right now to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we lift these prayers to you, Lord. Amen. Amen. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had early come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. You may be seated. There are events in the course of human history that completely change the course of how we live. We view them and we say, from this point on, nothing will ever be the same. Think about the things that have been invented in probably the lifetime of our grandparents up till now. Think of the invention of the automobile, the telephone, the computer. They've changed the way people have, they move, they communicate, and they live. You think about world events as well, things that you say, nothing has ever been the same since that day. You remember 9-11, of course, right? I remember 9-11 watching planes crash into the tower. And the sinking feeling that came over me is, this changes everything. And then, recently, right, we have suffered through two years of a pandemic. And they talk on TV constantly about a new normal. The new normal is just a, another way of saying nothing will ever be the same, forever changed, that this event in the course of human history has uh, changed our trajectory in, in some way. It'll never be the same again. Remember, there was a day that sort of changed everything. There was once this tree, and it was in the garden. And the course of human history would ever be changed by an event that occurred at that tree. Our first father, Adam, believed the lie, and he ate of that tree. 
And that tree had promised good. It promised knowledge and it promised wisdom. And the tree, it belonged to God and it belonged to God alone. This one is mine. The knowledge of good and evil belongs to me. You can have any other tree that you want. The fruit thereof is yours. But they ate of this tree and nothing would ever be the same. See, Adam, when he ate of that tree, upon him and upon everyone born after him came the curse of sin. From that day forward, Sin has infected humans so thoroughly that all have been born in the course of history continually choose evil. They're given the knowledge of good and evil and choose only evil and will not choose the good God who's there in front of them. They've been tainted by sin. The will to be to please God from this point forward had been captured and placed in bondage to sin from that day forward. There was a curse, and this curse of sin was on humankind. But in our passage today, we come to another tree. In our passage, we come to a day where on a hill stood a tree. And on that day, on that tree, the course of human history was changed forever. I would say that this, you know, barring the resurrection, but you put those two things together, and this is the ultimate day in human history. Everything has changed from this day forward. For those of us who believe, everything has changed. You see, the second Adam, in perfect obedience to the will of God, exchanged the intimacy that he had with the Father for the curse that was upon us all. Intimacy with God, perfect. And the perfect, obedient one said, intimacy with God, I'll let go and bring the curse of sin upon myself. The reversal of the curse, a second tree, what an amazing story. But this, as, as Josh was singing and as we were, we were all thinking as we were singing these songs this morning, that, that I, I even was in a church one time where we were singing the song, you know, the wondrous cross, the wonderful cross. We're singing this song and there was somebody there who said, oh, that is a horrible song. You cannot sing about the cross in such glowing admiration. And I'm like, why not? It is a glorious, glorious day. But I think that we don't understand that sin was reckoned dead. It was reckoned dead on that day. That's a day to celebrate. It's a day to celebrate. There's a greater celebration coming in a week. There's a greater celebration coming in a week. But that is a great celebration to celebrate the death of our sin, the reversal of the curse. In a week, we'll celebrate that now we have new life in Christ because He lives forevermore and that we live in Him. But here we are. We're at this tree and the death of Jesus Christ hung on that tree, having become a curse in Himself, reversed the curse, and He has changed the trajectory of life for evil 
covetous, malicious, envious, murderers, gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, those who were insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient children who were foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. For them, the trajectory of their life has changed because God punished their sin on the person of Jesus Christ. The trajectory of their life has forever changed. For those who come to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith, nothing will ever be the same. Praise God. Nothing will ever, ever be the same. Nothing will ever be the same. Our text comes with a purpose statement. The gospel writer tells us in verse 35, the apostle John, he testifies to the truth that of this day in human history, I want you to know that this is true, that Jesus really did die for sin on this day, in this way, fulfilling the scriptures. I want you to know this because I want you to believe that you too may believe, that you too may believe and you may have the course of your life change forever. From this day forward, if you believe, nothing will ever be the same. And all of that is to say that in this passage, if I was summing it up, that the death of Jesus occurred at a real time in history, a real person at a real place according to the prophetic word of God and was testified by eyewitnesses. Jesus really died for sin. That seems like a no-brainer, Jeff. Why are you saying that Jesus really died for sin? As I was praying with a brother in the church this week, one of the things that we talked about was, do we reckon sin dead? I think if we really knew that Jesus really, really died, that he really died for sin according to the scripture and it accomplished all that God said his death would accomplish, we would reckon ourselves dead in Christ and alive in him at the same time, dead to sin, but alive in Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 16 again. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus. See, under examination, Jesus has been declared guiltless, hasn't he? We saw last week that he is the Lamb of God who is without blemish. Jesus is the man without the sin-stained curse of Adam upon him. Jesus is the heaven-sent Son of God. Jesus is the other than us, the pure light from heaven, sent into a world of darkness who has not been overcome with darkness in himself, but he has shined the light of God into the lives of men. And he's declared to be the king who is not of this world, and yet the guiltless one is sentenced to death, and sentenced to death by crucifixion. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time discussing the particulars of crucifixion. I say that, but then I'm going to discuss some of the particulars. But be, And the reason why I don't want to go too far into it is that the Apostle John doesn't really talk a lot about the, the details of this. But the Romans themselves regarded crucifixion as horrendous. It, it was a horrendous way to die. It was the kind of thing that, that no Roman would subject another Roman to. 
right? This is how horrendous it was. It was never performed in their home country of Italy. It was only performed in the provinces where they ruled, and only that for slaves and the worst criminals. It was a dreaded way to die in the ancient world. The victim was scourged to the brink of death. The accused would often die at this early point. Next, the horizontal bar was bound to the person's back. He was led to the place of crucifixion by a centurion and four soldiers. When the victim arrived at the place of crucifixion, he was stripped of his clothes, which then became the property of the soldiers. The upright bar was ready to be received by the crossbar, and the hands and the feet were nailed to it. And there was a small ledge there under the heel of the victim. So on the upright, as he's stretched out, he can't breathe. And he would have to push upon the nails to expand his diaphragm to get a breath, right? Think about the word we get, excruciating. Do you imagine the pain of not being able to breathe? And you have to push up against the nails, against this ledge in order to get a breath. So here he is, Jesus nailed to this cross. They would sometimes take them hours to die, even days. And the torture, before the victim would die, he would die of, uh, of, of shock, exposure, blood loss, suffocation. And often they left him hanging there, dead. And then the birds would come and pick them apart. They would lay there, sometimes for days. So we should notice that in John's gospel, what does he leave out? He leaves out something that we hear in the other gospels. It, we, he intentionally leaves out Simon of Serene out of this account. Notice that he says, he went out bearing his own cross. John leaves Simon out of this as the other gospels mention Simon. They say that he helped Jesus carry its cross, the cross to the final spot on Golgotha. But John wants to be clearly known that it was Jesus who died that day on that cross. Soon after the crucifixion, you see, there were folks who, who denied that it was Jesus who indeed died on that cross. They, they would say things like, Simon of Cyrene carried the cross and he was actually the one who died that day, not Jesus. And you know, this is a belief that is still circulating in the Muslim world today. They would still say that Simon was the one hung on the cross, not Jesus, right? But John wants us to know, wants the reader to know that it was Jesus of Nazareth, a man born in a real time in history. It was that man who died at this time. John wants the reader to know that it was Jesus who loved him. It was Jesus who bore the burden and shame of the cross for him. It was Jesus who died for the apostle John. It was only Jesus whose death could atone for the sins of the apostle John. Jesus, John, John lived in victory. He lived in Knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus was the only possible atonement for sin. So he leaves Simon out. Jesus carried my burden to the cross, John would say. Jesus carried the weight of my sin to the cross that day. It is only Jesus who bore the shame of John Roberts' sin. 
It is only Jesus who carried the cross for him. Jesus is the only one who could atone for sin. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus in between them. You see, Jesus, the only one who could atone for sinners, he is the one who died in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was on a cross between two criminals whose guilt was not in doubt. Two of the crucified had this. If you could put a, a, another placard upon the three crosses, you would put the cross to the left, you would put a placard on there that said, this man had sin in him. On the cross on the right, you would have a placard that said, this man had sin in him. On Jesus' cross, there would be no such sign that said he had sin in him, but he had sin on him. And as we know, one of those men on the cross repented and believed. And Jesus took his sin on him too. But Jesus had no sin in him. There was only one who could atone for sinners. You see, Luke records the actions and the words of the criminal on the cross. One of the criminals uh, in chapter Luke, uh, verse, uh, in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 42, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, you, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The criminals on either side of Jesus had their charge upon them and they had sin in them. And the repentant thief declared, we have sin in us, but not Jesus by repentance and faith, the sin that was in the thief was now cast upon the sinless one. According to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, the Messiah would pour out his soul to death and be numbered with the transgressors. It was Jesus who died on a cross, counted as a criminal between two criminals in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it, put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written I have written. So in the first trial, the Jews charged Jesus with blasphemy. See, they're saying he makes himself equal with God. Without witnesses, without a means of defense, they bring Jesus then to a Roman trial. And there the charge is that he makes himself a king, that he makes himself a king superior to Caesar. Thus, the charge that is written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And this inscription, written in three languages, would ensure that the eclectic nature of the city around would understand this is the charge. Although it wasn't Pilate's intent, he's proclaiming Jesus is 
the King. Jesus is the King who's come from the throne of God in heaven, and He has now been given over to death, to death on a cross. The one who is not of this world, the one who is on the throne, he was the co-equal, co-creator, God of heaven. When Pilate wrote this charge, I don't want to, he's not trying to rightly proclaim Jesus as king, but he really wants to just stick it to the Jews here. When he says, I have written what I have written, he's sticking it to them. This is sticking it to them. Because the Jews had said to him that there is no king but Caesar, and you are no friend of Caesar. It's a big deal. You can pass by that idea that they say you are no friend of Caesar. But to be a friend of Caesar was like a special office. It was a special recognition. It was a recognition that this governor of this prefect was close that he was closely tied to the Caesar, that he had relationship with him, that he was connected to him, and that he had carried a favor with Caesar. I have written what I have written. This is the king of the Jews. Is a, is a slam at them. I'm not going to do as you say. I'm doing this because I'm getting back at you for what you've done to me. And I'm telling you this, that I'm the one in charge here. That's what he's communicating. I am the one in charge. I am the governor here. The rejection of Jesus is not only a charge, though, against the Jewish leadership, is it? And it's not a charge against Rome, just Rome, together. This is a whole problem that the whole world, that all the leaders and rulers of the world are culpable in. Think about what Psalm 2 says. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. The rulers of Jerusalem, the rulers of Rome, take counsel together against God and against the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. The king of kings sent from heaven was delivered over to death on a cross Friday, the 14th of Nisan, or the 3rd of April, AD 33, stripped of his outer garments like a common criminal, which accords with Scripture. One commentator has pointed out that no less than 20 Old Testament predictions relating to events that would surround the death of Christ, words that were written centuries before his first advent, were fulfilled with precision within a 24-hour period at the time of his crucifixion. No less than 20. Up to this point, the disciples have had a hard time, haven't they? As we've studied this book, we've seen they've had a hard time understanding how the, the predictions of scriptures concerned Jesus. But after his resurrection, right, the disciples, including the apostle John here, 
having been instructed by the risen Lord, they now understand the scripture fulfilled in Jesus. You see, these uh, soldiers didn't cast lots on his garments to fulfill the scriptures. It just so happens that they did do this. And John, understanding now the scripture says, this fulfilled the scriptures. This which happened to Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. It is from this standpoint on that John now shows all that happened had been prophetically revealed in God's word. The soldiers divided his garments according to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18. And John is drawing attention to the fulfillment of scriptures to show something. What is he showing us? He is showing us that God was in charge of these events. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He's showing us also, number two, that the scriptures do not fail. And they also show us that Jesus is indeed the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. Jesus was delivered to death, stripped of human dignity as the sinless son of God. He was the king of kings. But standing by the cross of Jesus, verse 25, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. As we look at this section, I want us to pay more attention to who is not present at the crucifixion than, than to who is. Of the 11 disciples, only John is present. See, John found his identity in Jesus Christ, didn't he? If you ask John, are you a fisherman? I fish, but I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Are you an apostle? I'm an apostle set apart by Jesus Christ because I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because he loves me, I go where he goes. See, he loved me. And he exposed himself to shame. He was abandoned by those he loved, yet he went abandoned because he loved me. He loved me to the point of giving me care over his mother. He loved me to the point of giving his mother over to care for me. See, those who understand that they are loved by Jesus will go to the hardest places if God calls them to that are you confident in the depth of Jesus' love in your life, brothers and sisters? Are you confident enough that wherever he calls you, you can trust that he sent you there because he loves you? And can you also trust that wherever he goes, he's already been? Wherever he sends you, he's already been. The worst of circumstances you might find yourself in, Jesus, in love, went there first. He's gone there for you. I think that in this passage, we need to understand that Jesus died for sin. I need to reckon it dead. But I also need to reckon that I am loved of God. I am loved in Christ Jesus, that it was the love of God who did that for me. And my identity fully changes, doesn't it? We have this crisis of identity in our country, don't we? We're trying to identify by sexual orientation or identifying ourselves by what side of the political aisle we're on. 
But identity is in Jesus Christ's love for us. If, we, if that's all we are, we're everything. We're everything. If that's all we are, I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. And that is John. And the reason why John was here in this, what seemingly is a horrific day, but John saw this as a day of victory, didn't he? John saw this as a day when the love of God was poured out for him, that the wrath of God was satisfied in him, that the love of God was poured out for him. And he says, I am loved by Jesus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. He lived to die. The penalty of the curse for God's people had been paid. Do you ever, when you're studying the scriptures, you go, how is it that it seems that as I try to walk this Christian life, that there are two things going on at the same time that seem diametrically opposed to one another? Right? They seem totally opposite to one another, don't they? Like, and, and we tend to, to, to swing to a side and think it's this or it's that. In the economy of God, it's yes. It's both and. Right? In, in church, we can often think about this, that we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we swing to that side. But then there's another side that says, we need to be eager to maintain the bond of peace. And here we are. We get swung to the left and then we become overbearing people that are hard to be around. Always contentious. Or we swing to the other side. Eager to maintain the bond of peace, brother. I'll let you do whatever you want to your demise, to the person's demise, right? Both of those at the same time. That is why when we look at the Christian life and how we live it, we go, this is impossible without the help of God. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, this is impossible for me to do both and. I have to do both and. I can't be an either or kind of person. The answer is yes. We need to be eager to maintain the bond of peace. Yes, we need to contend for the faith once delivered for all the saints. Yes, simultaneously in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here in this passage, we see two things at the same time, don't we? We see the wrath of God against sin. It's costly, it's ugly, it's disgusting, it's painful, it's brutal. And if we only see that, then we're going to be those people who say, don't sing the wonderful cross. They only see the wrath of God and the justice of God. But God would not be God unless he was just, would he? 
So we celebrate the just God who punish, rightly punishes sin. And at the same time, we see the love of God in Christ Jesus, who loves us so much that, that he places our sin upon himself on the cross, saving us through faith. It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The penalty for sin is finished. The love of God is complete. The obedience of Christ is complete. A lot of things are complete all at the same time. It is finished. It is done. It is paid in full. You see, in this moment, justice, wrath, mercy, grace, and love all coalesce in this one moment. And Jesus, for his love, died, reversing the curse. That's why I say that this is really a moment in history where everything changes from this point forward. When, when the full love of God, the full wrath of God, the full justice of God, the full mercy of God and love are all there in one moment when Jesus says it is finished. They've completed the reversal of the curse the curse of the tree in the garden was upon him on that tree on that day. He was the Lamb of God who took away sin. Sin has been paid for. It is finished. But the big question is, I think one of the big questions of this passage, or one of the big questions we ought to be asking is, for whom did Christ die? For whom did he die? Did Christ's death actually atone for sin? Did it actually atone for Jesse Wildman's sin? Did it actually accomplish what it was sent to do? Or, as some suppose, that Christ's death just made salvation possible for all men. And there's nothing particular about Jesse's sin except that Jesse's sin becomes paid for when he repents and believes the gospel. Is that true? Is that the way it works? Well, then it's Jesse's work that saved him, isn't it? It's not Christ's death who saved him. If Christ's death just merely made it possible, then Jesse saved himself. Any of you atone for your own sin? Any of you pay the price that it would cost? Did it atone for the sins of all people? Therefore, then all human beings are saved. Well, we can eliminate that notion right away just by reading our Bible. We can eliminate that notion by looking at Pharaoh. We can eliminate that notion by looking at the book of Revelation, seeing that there are judgments coming for those who will not repent and believe, right? We can, we can see that for sure. If Christ's death just made it possible to be saved, then the rest is up to the individual. He then died for no one's sin. Christ died for God's elect people, specifically making atonement for their sin, reckoning the penalty due, paid for. Jesse's sin was paid for by Christ's death on the cross. As we sang in the song this, this morning, I will boast in nothing else but his death, 
and resurrection. I can boast in nothing. Do you believe that the penalty for your sin has been paid? Do you believe it? If you do, you reckon yourself dead. As Jesse was saying this morning, you reckon that you died with him. That the old nature bent towards sin died that day with him. You died with Christ. Do you believe that Christ has put sin to death and that you died with him that day? Do you daily remind yourself when, when the old man rises up in you, when the old sinful nature rises up with you and you say, Christ died for that. It has no power over me anymore. Christ died for that sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because sin was dealt with on that day, on that cross. If you are a disciple whom Jesus loved, it is finished. The penalty for sin once and for all has been paid for. We have been restored to Adam's pre-fall condition. Before the fall, Adam and Eve could not sin or sin. And then the fall comes and they could only, they could not not sin. But sin paid for on the cross by the second Adam. Now we can sin or not sin. Before the atoning death of Christ, there was all of us had the same problem. We could not not sin. And Jesus here says, it is finished. It is done. And one day, and I'm looking forward to this day, and I hope that you are, one day we will be free, not only from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin altogether. That we will be separated from it forever. And then we'll be like the ultimate that we could ever be. We can't sin. Oh, I can't wait to the day that I can't sin. Man, wouldn't that be a day? That's, that should charge us forward that there's a day coming when we just can't sin. It just can't happen. It's not in us. It's not on us. It's not around us. It's not part of our lives anymore. We can't sin. And Jesus is, has won this victory for us. See, at the cross, you and I, we have been set free. And I would say to you, no matter where you are, if you're, if you're contemplating some sins that you say, there's just no way that Christ could die for me, could have died for that one, not for that one. Bring all of your transgressions before God and Jesus has borne them all. He has put an end to the enmity that you had with God, a life that you could not be pleasing to a holy God. Jesus pleased him fully and upon him your sin was placed. Upon you, Jesus then places his righteousness, his obedience, his freedom. I say, reckon the old person dead. It is finished. Reckon the old person dead. Well, as we move forward, Jesus has given up his spirit. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, 
And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that he might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Big question is, why has the apostle John included this section? He's included this section for several reasons. The fact that the soldiers did not break his legs show us that Christ, he was indeed the Lamb of God. The Passover lamb must be completely intact even after the sacrifice, even after they take it back, that it must be completely intact. The law required that the legs not be broken. The fact that this fact testified that Jesus was really dead. He he wants us to know that he really, really died for sin. Breaking the legs would hasten death. But as they pierced his side and the blood and water flowed out, he was really dead and it left no doubt. Secondly, that his death was the fulfillment of the scripture. Psalm 34, 20, he protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. See, William Cowper, he wrote this hymn, and I like the beginning of it. It says this, There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, a sinner's plunged beneath that flood. Sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And John says, this is my testimony. This is my testimony that the blood that he spilled, he spilled for me. This is my testimony. It's true. And I want you to believe too. Christ died according to the scriptures, John would say. And I am a witness to the truth. I pass this on to you that you may believe. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Because of his death, you may have life in his name. Doesn't this become like a creed? for all believers. John is announcing a creed, in a sense. I'm showing you these things in this way. I'm giving you the testimony to the truth that you might believe. For I delivered to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That becomes the creed of the one who has, who has gone to the cross and saw that Jesus died for them, that he died for you and me. It should fire us up to, to be an evangelist like John, right? I'm delivering to you of what is first and foremost importance that Christ died for sinners. In accordance with the scriptures, Christ died for sinners. Verse 40, uh, 38. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate uh, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds, 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. What we've seen in our passage this morning is that the King of heaven, who was on the throne of God, the Lamb who was worthy to open the scrolls, the only one found in heaven and earth, that Jesus went from a throne to a tomb by way of a tree. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Cursed for you, cursed for me, absorbing the curse that was born into us from the first Adam. Jesus was delivered over to death. Jesus was stripped of his dignity. He was abandoned. He died for sin, putting an end to the curse for whom God has chosen. And he died according to the scriptures. And he, according to the scriptures, was buried with a rich man in his death. The king from the throne of heaven, delivered into the hands of evil men, according to the divine purpose of God. Jesus, born to a real place in a real time, obediently carried the burden of human sin on a cross. The curse of Adam that he received at the tree of knowledge of good and evil was placed on the second sinless Adam on a tree on a hill. We go from one garden scene to another garden scene. What a glorious garden scene that our sin has been dealt with. The wrath of God against sin was poured out upon the sinless one. His death took the curse of man's sin and it placed it on Jesus. And think about this. The love of God for His Son is now given to those who believe in His name. You and I are now sons and daughters. Sons and daughters with access to a holy God because we are in His Son and His Son is in us and we are His children. Those who believe he a right to be called children of God. That's us. This is singularly, up to this point, the greatest event in human history. Nothing will ever be the same. But if you sit here this morning and you're hard-hearted, and you won't turn your heart to the Lord and you won't repent, from this point forward, all things remain the same, except that they get worse and worse and worse for you. Because one day, you will stand having to make payment for that sin. But for us, in Christ Jesus, we stand before holy God, and Jesus says, it is paid for. It is finished. Amen to that, brothers. This is a great day. Will you reckon 
sin dead? Will you reckon yourself dead with Christ on the cross and alive with him in his resurrection? The old man dead, the new man alive. Will you reckon that to be true?